The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I'd been out about two months and found myself running short of grub. I'd almost made up my mind to light out the next day. I climbed up to the top of a sharp ridge and looked down into a canyon. After some difficulty, I found the way down to the creek. The water was almost white, but there, I found a kind of a schist and slate formation. Now comes the most interesting part. I only had a small prospecting pan, but I found colors at once right on the surface, and such colors they were. I knew then that I had struck it right at last. The bedrock was yellow with gold. Some of the nuggets were as big as walnuts. There was millions stowed around in the little cracks. On account of the weight, I buried part of the gold at the foot of a tent-shaped rock facing the creek. You can't miss it. There's a mark cut out in it. Taking with me what I suppose to be $10,000, the way was rough and I was not feeling well. I arrived at the lake and while resting there was taken sick and have never since been able to return. And now I fear I never will. I cannot give you any exact directions and it may take a year or more to find. Don't give it up, but keep at it and you will not fail. You will be repaid beyond your wildest dreams. I only suggest that you go alone or at least only take one or two trusty Indians to pack food and no one need know until you find the place and get everything for yourself. W. Jackson, 1904. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold. Episode 9, The Curse of El Dorado. I'll guide you through what you just heard in this episode, and I'll be joined by the rest of the team from the Adventure TV docuseries, Dead Man's Curse. On this journey through history, we'll share information from experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction. If this is your first time joining me on this journey, I recommend you go back to the beginning as we investigate Slumuk's life, the curse, walk in his footsteps, and maybe find a little bit of that infamous and possibly cursed gold. This is Katie territory and this is their living room. If you misbehave in here, you're gonna have consequences. That's Cyril Pierre, Katie Elder and Peter Pierre's grandson. By now, you know one thing's for certain. There's been a whole lot of misbehaving going on out at Pitt Lake. Cyril Pierre spoke about the family, community, legend, and the land at Lillooet Slough for the TV series Dead Man's Curse. The slough was where Slumok shot and killed Louis B. on September 8, 1890. According to the legend in the late 1800s, a brash, young, indigenous prospector out of Pitt Lake would come into New Westminster, British Columbia, flashing gold nuggets as big as walnuts and blowing cash in the town's bars and brothels. He would then disappear for a few weeks, only to return with more loot, until one day, he shot and killed a man to protect his mine, a source of gold said to be worth billions. The legend says that from the gallows, Slumuk uttered the curse, Nika Memlus Mine Memlus, 
which loosely translated from Chinook means, when I die, the mind dies. Brian Attenson is a historian and author of Slumox Gold. He says, after Slumox execution, word of a lost gold mine in the Pit Lake region spread, slowly, even if the curse wasn't attached to it, yet. There's this ethos that is built up that there were thousands of people in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s all looking for this gold and so on. So we know that a certain number of people have never come back from their quests. All of these were reported in the paper and and, uh, the papers of the day. In the decades following Slumok's execution, we see people injured, sometimes fatally, while going into the region looking for a gold mine without much proof of its existence. Now, the only relationship most of us have with gold these days is that wedding ring. (laughs) Herringbone, bracelet, or Cuban link chain we rocked back in the day. But as we've discussed, through most of human history, gold meant much, much more. Everybody's looking for the value of gold, and we can go back to Egyptian times or Sumerian times. There's thousands of years of history Gold represented wealth and power, freedom from hunger and oppression, a source of abundance that was neither animal nor vegetable, but mineral. People have killed and died for gold, crossed oceans for gold. Its luster and scarcity easily made it the stuff of legend. Epic stories of vast quantities of gold, either as nuggets or mines or entire cities, have existed throughout the history of the world and on every continent. For example, Mansa Musa, king of the Mali Empire of West Africa in the 14th century, has been called the wealthiest person in history. After making the pilgrimage to Mecca with an enormous entourage and more gold than almost any other human had ever seen. In 13th century China, the Venetian explorer Marco Polo is believed to have visited the summer capital of Chengdu With marble palaces featuring rooms covered in gold, it gave rise to the legend of Xanadu. Among Europeans in the 16th century, however, there arose a persistent legend about a city, an empire even, across the Atlantic Ocean made out of solid gold, El Dorado. The term El Dorado is Spanish for the golden one, and with good reason. The origins of this legend go back to the days of the conquistadors, who spoke of a mythical king of indigenous Muisca people of what is now Colombia and South America. As a rite of initiation, the king would cover himself in gold dust before submerging himself in a lake high up in the Andes Mountains. Just like with the legend of Slumak, there have been variations of the legend of El Dorado over the centuries. The golden man evolving into a golden city, or an entire golden empire. The legend of El Dorado, the man, didn't begin reverberating throughout the colonial Eurosphere until around 1530s. The Spanish had already ransacked at least one major indigenous empire in the quote, unquote, new world in their search for gold. In 1521, after several years of incursions and fighting, the Aztec empire in what is now Mexico fell to Spain which immediately put into place the infamous encomienda system. This system of slave labor forced conquered indigenous people to work in the gold mines and on plantations. 
These poor folks extract gold in Mexico and silver in what is now Bolivia, both major sources of Spain's wealth and power over the next several decades. The Inca Empire, along the Pacific coast of South America, was next. It only took Spain a whole 40 years to completely conquer them and get their gold finally in 1572. By the mid-1600s, almost the entirety of the Americas were colonized by the Europeans. The Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, and English, in particular, were in search of El Dorado, the seven cities of Cibola, or one of the many other mythical golden kingdoms said to be found just through the next mountain pass or impenetrable patch of jungle. As the Spanish sailed north along the Pacific coast of Mexico in the 1700s, they established military installations as far north as the Presidio of San Francisco in what is now the U.S. city of the same name. The New World still held legendary status as a place of dreams and riches. Even the name for the northwesternmost region of Spain's colonial holdings in the Americas, California, came from a popular 16th century Spanish romance novel. In the novel, California was a mythical island inhabited only by a warrior race of black women ruled by Queen Calafia, who used weapons made of, you guessed it, gold. In real life, California was a land of bounty for the over 340,000 indigenous people who lived there before the Spanish arrived. Most of it fell into American hands at the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848. Ten years before gold was found on the Fraser River in British Columbia, and before Slumuk's life would be forever changed. And one week before the official handover of California, gold was discovered in what would become El Dorado County, California, triggering one of the largest gold rushes in the world. It also triggered the genocide of California's indigenous people through massacre, disease, displacement, and enslavement. The process started under Spanish rule and accelerated under the Americans. By 1900, the indigenous population of what was now the U.S. state of California had fallen by over 90% to a mere 16,000 people, mirroring similar devastation in British Columbia. The search for El Dorado and the cursed carnage it brought with it didn't end in California. Most of the 30,000 prospectors who fled into British Columbia in 1858 came from the depleted California gold fields. While El Dorado has mostly receded into history and literature or into the realm of fiction, the lure of lost gold, of nuggets the size of walnuts and mines with gold worth billions remains. As does the danger of losing your mind or your life in search of it. It is, after all, why, in spite of it all, I'm here on the trail of Slumox Gold. And while we don't have the treasure map Slumuk drew for his nephew, Peter Pierre, we have another map of sorts, courtesy of a Mr. W. Jackson. If you're going to find Slumax gold, you start with the Jackson letter. That's Adam Palmer, mountaineer, historian, and my good friend, and fellow explorer on the television series Dead Man's Curse. He's the one you heard at the start of this episode as he read excerpts from the Jackson letter. On the TV series, we were on the hunt for Slumax Gold, and this is what we had to say after one of our expeditions in the Pit Lake region. The best way to find Slumax Gold is to follow those who followed him. If you want to find something, talk to someone who's already found it. That's Walter Jackson. The story goes, after finding Slumax Gold Source, Jackson was weighed down with too much gold to carry out. 
But every season for several years, he came out late in the fall with 5,000 to 7,000 in gold nuggets. So he buried what he couldn't transport, not knowing it would be his last expedition. Back home in San Francisco, Jackson fell gravely ill. On his deathbed, he wrote a letter to a friend with clues to the location of his hidden treasure. Back then, thousands of dollars. Could you imagine what that's actually worth now? Big fine. That's huge. Any prospector out there looking for this gold has a copy of that letter in his back pocket. That's the reason they're out here in the first place. The Jackson letter is the treasure map for Slumok's gold. That's because no one has seen copies of the map Slumok drew for Peter Pierre for almost a century. Adam says that after Slumok's hanging, a small wave of prospectors flowed into the Pit Lake region, never giving up on finding their own El Dorado in Slumok's backyard. Well, there was a flurry of prospectors that were converging onto Pit Lake in the early 1900s. So this is generally, you know, basically five to 10 years after Slumok's hanging, there was exploration happening at Pit Lake, um, which is normal from the time. There was lots of leftover prospectors that didn't go, you know, that didn't really follow the gold rush up into the interior. The Fraser Valley was, you know, during that time period, very less populated. And basically your population consisted of, of loggers, prospectors, leftover railway workers. And, you know, when one of them hears about a legend of lost gold in the area, you know, that, that rumor spreads and, you know, it's uh, well documented that they were looking for gold and some of them were looking for this lost treasure. In previous episodes, we've talked about who might have known there was a connection between Slumok and gold. Did the shopkeeper who disappeared after buying Slumok's bag of gold for only $27 tell anyone? What about the editor of the Daily Columbia newspaper, who was the brother-in-law of Slumok's public defender? and a principal partner in Slumok Mining Company. How did George Moody happen upon the placer claim he found in 1903? Somebody knew something, because people were searching. But back to the letter. Historian Brian Attenson says there's some question about who this Jackson fella even was. A province newspaper article in 1906, where they say that a guy named Frazier, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R, was going up into the bush searching for some gold. No mention of Slumac, no mention of Jackson, no mention of a letter, but Frazier was going to go looking for some gold. And nobody knows uh, if anything happened. Did Frazier come back? Did he have any gold or whatever? Gold seekers are everywhere. So maybe, maybe Frazier is actually a different name for Jackson. And it slipped by a few years. But what about Walter Jackson? Who was this mystery man? Here's Adam. Well, Walter Jackson doesn't actually enter the picture until about 1915. You know, there's no birth record or death certificate of Walter Jackson. And sometimes that name seems to be interchangeable in the early days between, you know, we have several names like Shotwell, Walter Jackson. And it fits a lot of these other earlier accounts of these prospectors that have come up in 1901, like Clifford Wellington, who was a real person documented, came from Australia. So you have several characters during this time period. Walter Jackson is one of them. He wasn't necessarily popular, but his letter, the so-called Jackson letter, is what became popular. And that's kind of almost the centerpiece of the legend now. What we had and what we still have kind of to this day is the Jackson letter. 
To be honest, it seems real enough to me. We have the letter, and it's been written about and photographed in the hands of many a prospector out in Pitt Lake. It's almost like the Bible of this entire adventure. The thing is, there are different versions, different copies, different stories about how the letter came into people's hands and what it contains. What do we know about the origins of the letter? So we have this this letter stating that this person has friends in Alaska, possibly in San, you know, was seeing a doctor in San Francisco, and then also mentions a town in Colorado. Now, if you dive into those towns, you find that these places are real. There was a, a prospector by that name. I mean, it's a very common name. So, of course, you can research all these little clues and hints in this letter to find out, you know, if this person existed and, and, the, and the language in that letter originates from that time period that he was up here. So the origins of the letter seem to be like it was actually, a, you know, a real letter that was, you know, true to the date that it came into existence. So it wasn't, this is not a letter that has been forged in recent times or came way after the legend. The origin of this letter has stayed and to this date true to when it supposedly came into existence. We do know that a prospector wrote this letter. I mean, it's definitely the language that is used in it and the fact that it's been in existence at least since 1915. So it is old. According to his letter, Jackson only received about $8,000 in San Francisco for the gold he carried out of the pit, which he thought would get him $10,000. He started to get sick prior to leaving the mountains and never went back because he died before he could. I think we should note here that in 1906, San Francisco was devastated by an earthquake and fire that killed over 3,000 people, destroyed almost 30,000 buildings. Could Jackson's death certificate have been destroyed in that fire? More importantly for us, was Jackson the very first official victim of the curse? We may never know for certain, but Adam and hundreds of other prospectors before him believe that the Jackson letter contains the truth. And so do I. Well, I mean, I've had this Jackson letter with me on probably almost every trip I've been into the upper pit. So when you match up the geographic features and the geological features mentioned in this letter, you can match it up almost to anywhere in the mountains. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that's mentioned in the letter is a tent-shaped rock. Well, anyone that goes up in the mountains, you know, there's, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of tent-shaped rocks everywhere. Then it comes down to, okay, well, let's find the best tent-shaped rock. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you come across a tent-shaped rock, you're like looking over the hill and you're like, oh, there's a better one. Let's check that one instead. I mean, of course it matches up. I mean, it would, it has to. I mean, you're basically talking about a letter that describes a, a tent-shaped valley or a, a tent-shaped rock in a valley, you know, that has a canyon, a disappearing creek. I mean, you look in older, any boulder field with snow runoff, there's going to be a creek running down into that boulder field that disappears. So you have to be smart in the sense that, you know, you read the letter, you, you look for the geographic features, you look for the geological features, and you matched up where you are. Well, anyone that's been in the mountains knows that, you know, I, I, I can write a letter right now and, and uh, you know, describe a, a mountainous valley. And you take that letter out on a mountaineering trip and you can match it to almost where you want it to be. So the trick is, though, is underneath that 10-shaped rock is buried gold. 
So that's the game changer. So now, now we're looking for buried gold under a tent-shaped rock. Well, I tell you, if, if I could count how many times I've dug underneath a tent-shaped rock in the mountains, it would be embarrassing. One thing that I've learned the hard way is that if you're going on an expedition with Adam, you won't just be looking under rocks for El Dorado. I'm not Nick Cage finding that golden city of Cibola under Mount Rushmore in the movie National Treasure, <laughs> Book of Secrets. Prospecting in the Pit Lake region is not for the faint of heart, even now. I mean, we used helicopters and expensive modern equipment. When I went with Adam, it was freezing. We climbed across glaciers and up ice walls like Sylvester Stallone and Cliffhanger. Prospectors like Jackson didn't have all this modern technology back then. He didn't Google. Instead, he went to a local spots and he listened to the miners. He listened to the people of the land. And he pretty much did his own research and figured out what areas to go to, what to look for. And there was enough information to make him want to go and look for the gold himself. The Jackson letter goes back to a time when there was no road maps, no road signs, no Alexa telling you where to go. The letter is, in a way, a written map. It was simply step-by-step -step landmark details, trying to tell one friend to another how to find the gold he left behind, the mother load. It's literally like he's telling us how to get to it. I'm just glad that I met somebody who's more obsessed with Slumac than me, Adam Palmer. Adam's an expert mountaineer, guide, and to me, a great friend. I mean, if all this was easy, would there even be a legend or a curse? The Jackson letter talks about possibly having to wait an entire year to get to the gold. Adam says this is because of the rough landscape, the brutal weather, and all the other forces that could work against a prospector. The focus for finding the lost gold mine has always been uh, in the subalpine, alpine zone of the Upper Pit River country. So that zone, that environment is basically under snow eight, nine months out of the year. So you have a very brief window to actually search the ground because if there is a, a lost gold mine or buried gold under a rock, I mean, it, it, you're going to have to be on bare ground. So your, your window of opportunity to actually search and look for the lost gold mine, if you are going to do it, very consistently and thoroughly would be those months of August and September. So today we can keep going back out, but back in the day without helicopters and the equipment that we have, a prospector would maybe get what, one or two shots of the gold in a lifetime. It's so different every year though, because it's not predictable. You know, I don't care what you say, you know, how much of an expert you are, there's no way to predict the weather in the mountains, you, you basically can mitigate the risks of getting trapped in a storm and, and all those things from, through experience. But when you're out looking for a lost gold mine at 6,000 feet and you're traversing over three, four or five different glaciers going into valleys, the weather systems change with that area that you're in. The glaciers in that area in the upper pit create their own weather windows. So when you get that, you have a different window of opportunity for, you know, each area. People don't understand, you know, southwestern British Columbia, you know, the coast mountain range is one of the harshest environments on the planet. And it's not because it's hot, not because it's cold, not because we have, you know, high winds, it's because we have all of that. <laughs> we have all of that mixed together. And because the train is so difficult, that might be the reason Jackson urges in his letter to take, quote, one or two trusty Indians, unquote. 
Besides this being a pretty problematic statement, we do know there were First Nation guides, including Slumuk, who showed prospectors the way to the gold. If you were a smart prospector back in that day, you would want to have the experts that knew where they were going, knew the land, knew the country. The experts back in that day were the people that lived here. I mean, they had family ties to the land for thousands of years. They had trails. They had a network of highways, trade routes, and that would be the secret to success to come, you know, going in and coming out. Now, they were the experts, but they saw these people coming in. And a lot of the time, the prospectors back in the day, they didn't respect the land. They didn't respect people. You have very, various newspaper accounts of the guides, the First Nations people that were helping the prospectors, basically abandoning it. You know, they were abandoning the trip. It's my opinion that they were saying, forget this guy. This guy's a loser. You know, he's coming in. He's, he's bossing us around. Forget him. We're going to leave him here. He can figure his own way out. And you see a lot of accounts that happening, you know, halfway through a trip and expedition, the indigenous guys at that time basically going halfway through the trip and saying, forget it, I'm out of here. They think they can just go up to a creek and pan gold and talk to a bunch of, you know, First Nations in the area like they own the place. Sorry, you're setting yourself up for death there. You have to respect the people and you have to respect the land. Earlier in this episode, we shared with the Catesy elder Cyril Pierre to say straight out that if you misbehave in Katsi territory, there will be consequences. Mistreating the people, mistreating the land, you're asking for trouble. Walter Jackson might have made it out, but he didn't live long after telling the tale. Remember I told you that one night on the mountain, I had one of the most vivid dreams of my life, when I felt a cold, sandy, wind-blown finger press against my lips. That happened on an expedition when Adam and I were following the directions laid out in the Jackson letter. Somebody was trying to tell me something, and it wasn't just me. I stood up, and in front of me, about, I don't know, 50 feet in front of me, was this entity that looked like an extremely thin man. And it said, retreat and live, proceed, and die. Was it Slumok? Was it the curse? All this and more as we travel deeper into the legend of Slumok to uncover the truth behind the dead man's curse. Thank you for joining me and special thanks to Adam Palmer and Brian Antonson for their work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumok's Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalyn Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 